This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. Uh, my name is Flick Ford and joining me in the studio is Will Cox. Hey, Will. G'day. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. And uh, Vaishnavi Vajurkma. Hey, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. Um, we are in the very final days of April Amnesty. Um, for listeners who don't know what that is, April is a very special month here at Triple R. It's a month when we ask our listeners to show their support by subscribing or donating to Triple R to help shows help keep shows like Primal uh, Screen on air. Um, we are all volunteers here at Primal Screen, and it's your sponsorship and your donations that allow for us to stay on air. Uh, also, you get to, if you subscribe in, I think you've got like six days. If you subscribe in the next six days, you could win a whole heap of really cool prizes. So um, head to rrr.org.au to check that out. Uh, on tonight's show, we're going to chat with Melbourne-based producer Dave Jacob about his analogue synth-based techno-punk reimagining of James Cameron's 1986 sci-fi horror masterpiece, Aliens. Then we'll howl like wolf cubs and wait for Alexander Skarsgård. Sorry, I, I wrote this like half an hour before going to air. <laughs> uh, where was I? We're going we're gonna <laughs> to wait for Alexander Skarsgård to find us in Robert Eggers' The Northman. And finally, we'll wrap up the hour with Tilda Swinton in the Colombian jungle for the drama fantasy Memoria. So James Cameron's 1986 sci-fi Alien starring Sigourney Weaver as Ripley, the sole survivor of an alien attack, is right up there with one of my favourite films of all time. Uh, so my interest was indeed piqued when I heard that a Melbourne-based producer had reimagined the classic score by James Horner and created an entire album to match the film. Dave Jacob, uh, you are that Melbourne producer and yes. you have titled this reimagined score Aliens Live 426. Um, I heard it took you two weeks to, to make this. Um, was this some, some spontaneous like lockdown decision or have you been sitting on this idea for a while? Uh, it was the, the second kind of lockdown decision I made to, to rescore a movie quite over a short period of time. So um, it was part of a, a live stream for Laser Highway, which is a Melbourne synthwave uh, event that happens in Loop Bar. And during lockdown, they were doing a lot of live streams. And then the Halloween gig was generally the one that I would come along and play at because I tend to play kind of like darker, more aggressive music. And so when the kind of Halloween Twitch stream came up, um, Chris, who runs Laser Highway, approached me in 2020 the first time and said, hey, we've got this stream coming up. Would you like to do something? And rather than just go, yeah, cool, I'll play a few tunes, I guess I did what I always do, which is overcomplicate things massively and go, <laughs> well, why don't I, instead of just playing a bunch of tunes, try and like rescore a horror movie? <laughs> so the first year around, I did Dawn of the Dead, the original Romero Dawn of the Dead, um, wrote a bunch of songs to that, performed it live, and then last year he approached me again, and he was like, cool, what now? I was like, okay, let's try and build on that a bit, let's try and do something a bit bigger, a bit brasher, and so um, 
wrote out a list of all my favorite movies from the 80s and kind of went scratching them off one by one and then went, do you know what? Aliens doesn't have, and as we were kind of talking about earlier, it doesn't have a very distinct score. And it's it's also got a lot of scenes that are really energetic and action-packed, but the score just didn't seem to match. So I went, okay, let's give this a shot. And... Uh, of course, as you always do, I was like, yeah, there's a deadline well off in the distance. I'll just kind of think about this for a long time. And then two and a half weeks out, I was like, oh, wow, I better start making some notes and writing some music. So, yeah, over the kind of 14 days in the lead up to it, then wrote about, uh, I think it ends up being like 60 or 70 minutes of new material with a track that's inspired by Sting and another track that was a cover version of um, Techno Syndrome as well. But, yeah, so it was a really interesting product, uh, project and a lot of fun. Did you say inspired by Sting? Yes. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Just clarifying, I thought you said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As you were. Okay. And like you say, Dave, that mm. some, you know, it's not the most memorable score for the original. Mm. Um, and I think for listeners, it, it might be worth a, a little refresher. So I've got a, a very short clip um, from James Horner's original score for James Cameron's uh, film Aliens, and I'm going to play it now. I don't actually know what scene this is from, but. Um, you can imagine it. So that was called Going After the Newt, and that is performed by the London Symphony Orchestra. It's safe to say uh, that your album doesn't sound anything like <laughs> James Horner's <laughs> original score. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing, was that a conscious decision to try to distance yourself from that? Uh, well, I was trying to play to my own strengths, which is kind of more in that electro, techno, um, analog, synth-driven sort of direction. And plus with it being for a synthwave night as well, I wanted to give people something that would be in line with their interests too. Um, but yeah, it's just funny, like even listening to that, I was just like, I, I could not tell you what scene that was from, you mm. know? And so I guess with the, the direction that I went in, I was trying to do something that was a little bit more like tracks that were distinct and also were reflecting the emotion and the energy in mm. each of the scenes. Um, whereas, and no offense to James Horner, and I hope he never hears this, <laughs> but, you know, I just felt like the, there wasn't that same emotional reflection in the tracks that were in that score. It mm. kind of was a bit more about the bravado and brass and drums, but there's there's like a, it sounds strange, but there is like a very emotional underlayer to Aliens, you know, the mm. whole story between like, um, you know, Ripley and Noosh, and it's about family in a very strange way. And, um, yeah, you know, it's uh, an interesting one. And I guess I wanted to try and reflect that more emotional stuff, but then also make it a bit banging as well. So, yeah. Yeah, well, it's definitely banging. I was listening to it the other night. Um, you gave me a little bit of a teaser. Mm. And uh, I actually genuinely, I was home alone at the time, and I genu genuinely got a little bit kind of scared by some parts of the soundtrack. Mm. And in a really good way, you know, yeah. it just gets under your skin. And... I really love when I listen to music and you're imagining the, what what vis, what visuals could go with mm, this, and yeah. um, it definitely takes you to some some deep and dark places. Oh, I'm great. Gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> that's a recommendation in my books. Uh, I'm going to play uh, a little bit of your album. It's called mm -hmm. Express Elevator to Hell, um, and maybe we can hear a little bit about this track afterwards. Sure. <laughs> 
Um, Dave, that was, I feel like listening to mm. Elevator to Express Elevator to Hell, yep. which could possibly be the, um, the name of my memoir when I come <laughs> around to it. Um, what, what can you tell us about that track? Um, well, Express Elevator to Hell, so uh, first of all, it, it kind of like soundtracks the uh, three different scenes in one song. So it, it starts off with the Marines getting ready to get on the drop ship, leave their kind of ship, and then down to LV-426, land, and then explore the kind of colonist platform. So apologies again that it's like a nine-minute long song. <laughs> I was going to split them into parts yeah. one and part two, and I was just like, I've run out of time. It's just like, it's done now. You but definitely don't need to apologize for that. I think there is actually something very fitting for these songs mm. to go for that length because you really do sink into it, and yeah. especially because they change quite a bit from song to song. Mm. So it's oh, nice good. to be taken into a different world and to really stay with it. Mm. Okay, great. Well, I'll take that. Thanks very much. <laughs> um, but yeah, I kind of... Uh, Express Elevator to Hell was just kind of, I wanted to capture that, I guess that one was a little bit more that classic synth-wavy, Juno-y, arpeggiated sort of style, but I wanted to like take it from this idea of like, you know, they're on the ship, they're getting ready to leave, it's the energy is like ramping up, we've got a couple of like great little chats that happen while they're on the dropship going down to the planet, and I just wanted something that would just ramp the intensity up Mm. over the course of like three or four minutes to the moment that they hit the ground and, you know, travel out in their APC. Um, so I went with, you know, probably one of the oldest tricks in the book and just, like, went with a really slow tempo. And over the course of three <laughs> minutes, literally just tapping the tempo button one click at a time. Um, but one of my proudest moments probably of the entire score was, because the whole thing was performed live in one take to the movie, the, I wasn't sure when things were going to land. Mm. So I was like really hoping because there's like three and a half minutes from when that song starts to when they land on the on LV-426. And I was literally like watching the video the whole time <laughs> and I'm increasing the tempo and I'm like, oh my God, maybe this is actually going to kick in at the exact moment that they get out of the dropship. And the moment that it happened, like they land and Bishop drives the APC out and I'm like, oh my God, hit the button, boom. And it actually kicked in at the right time. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, this was just perfect. This was meant to happen. So, um, yeah, there was loads of little nice moments like that that happened during the score, but that was definitely one of those ones where I was like, oh. And when you, when you watch the live show itself, if, um, you know, if you get a ticket for the release party and watch it, you'll understand because of that build-up and build-up and build-up, the moment they hit the ground and the song kicks in, it's, yeah, it's a special moment. I, I think of myself as someone who knows Aliens quite well, but, mm. I mean, did you just binge watch it a whole lot before preparing this? No, but I've watched it so many times at this stage, I don't think I can ever go back. (laughs) In the last week alone, I've probably watched, well, my own, like, live score version of it probably, like, 15 times. Yeah. And just so I could, like, remaster the audio and everything. But it's just, like, I'm kind of, like, mindlessly mouthing along to all the dialogue now because it's just hurt it so much. (laughs) Can I just ask, Hmm. um, you've... You've taken it from a kind of well, a pretty generic sounding action mm. movie soundtrack. We were saying it sounds quite Hans Zimmery, mm. um, which I was quite disparaging about um, <laughs> the original. Um, and you've made it more that kind of 80s synthy, mm. John Carpenter y, um, Tangerine yeah. Dream kind of mm. thing. Are there any particular scores that you copped on, copped from for this? That I was referencing for mm. this? Um, probably like early John Carpenter stuff. I mean, like, I'm a big fan of. You know, the classic Carpenter themes like Halloween, Assault on Precinct 13, um, Escape from New York, all that kind of stuff mm. I absolutely love. And I think that's definitely seeped into my subconscious over the years. So so definitely a lot of those. But then uh, I find a lot of my references for this were kind of 
a lot of kind of late 90s, early noughties techno, oh. and particularly like French techno and French house, and then some modern synth wave as well. Um, but one of the biggest influences me probably, um, there's a French artist called Vitalik, or Vitalik, uh, he's sometimes called, and he's been a huge influence on me over the years anyway, with all the music I write. And when I was writing this score, his kind of brand of very emotional, melodic, electro, techno, um, was was massive for this. So a lot of the kind of really melodic, upbeat stuff that happens in the score is pretty much a direct reference to, to him as well. Mm, and I, it's kind of interesting hearing those, um, hearing you list all those influences because mm. I think there's a lot to unpack in in this album. Um, something I was thinking about was, I mean, I can definitely hear Carpenter in this. Mm, yeah. um, he's one of my <laughs> one of my favorites. So it's it's mm. kind of lovely hearing it. Oh, I'm just curious to how it's going to play out when people are watching the film and listening to your reimagining because I think mm. that it will really change how that film comes across. I mean, there's mm. recently um, over the last few years, uh, Hear My Eyes has been doing some really yeah. awesome stuff with reimagined scores and, and kind of having these, you know, often sold-out shows. Mm. And I think that there's a real interest in that, especially, you know, I suppose there's sometimes a bit of reverence around these yeah. older films, and particularly I, I was wondering whether you do get a bit worried that you're going to get some, like, James Horner fanboys. <laughs> Sorry, I said fanboys, fan, fan people, yeah. fan folk um, who are – gonna come for you do you reckon like you're gonna just get like trolled on twitter by these people can we have a look at the window and just make sure there's no one outside with like pitchforks yeah. just like we're coming for you encryptor um i again you know I, I don't think i've ever met anyone who has said to me do you know what i love that james horner score from <laughs> aliens it's, it's... no 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 I'm definitely not the james horner score <laughs> okay. but like just the film in general because mm. i think there's like there's a real reference. Yeah, yeah, precisely. There's, it's more that aliens, like some mm. of those films, they get really locked into this fandom. Yeah. And then when people are like, oh, I just want to play around and experiment with mm. it, sometimes there can be a real pushback from that. But yeah. even yeah. with sci-fi, I think there's such mm. a loyalist audience around sci-fi. People yeah. don't like you to tamper with the, <laughs> with the original. Yeah. And actually when I was listening to your score... And this might be a very millennial Netflixy thing to say, but it did remind me of Stranger Things and oh, like yeah, that yeah. synth eighties kind of vibe totally. around sci-fi. And yeah. I feel like it'd go with the aliens aesthetic really well. Yeah. Actually. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that's you know, I think that's um, one of the things that I really wanted to to capture with that was like a lot of modern synth wave and that kind of like retro eighties and retro wave aesthetic. Um, it just that movie just screams it anyway. Mm. You know, you've got all those like. It sounds like such a weird thing to be fanning out about, but like um, all of those retro displays, you know, when you see like mm. a, a, a sci-fi movie from the 80s and you see like all of the internal displays on like an APC or a dropship or even like the tracker, it's all that very retro wave aesthetic. Mm. And I love that. And I feel like the having a more synthy retro kind of uh, soundtrack for it just like reflects that that aesthetic yeah, that it has absolutely totally. and yeah. it underscores the materiality of it as well which mm. I think the the symphony orchestra score I think takes away from it it takes you to mm. it feels very out of sync in some ways it's almost like very common of the time to kind of have that yeah. and, and it was kind of connected up with really good cinema as well this idea that you yeah. need to get the symphony orchestra involved mm. for that and kind of elevate Yep. The text, whereas I think that there was a, a some sort of an aversion towards using those more Cynthia takes um, tracks because that was sort of associated more with like pulp, yeah, um, and, and pop music as well. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Know, whereas films were getting more grand. Yeah, you know, veering away from. 
pop scores. And yeah. I, I think that um, the, the track that I, I just like to play a snippet of this because it, it goes for nine minutes. <laughs> but um, this was one of my favourite tracks of your album. It's called A Goddamn Town Meeting. Totally um, imagine that on the dance floor as well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was, if you just tuned in, that was the Encryptors, uh, a goddamn town meeting, which is part of a reimagined score for James Cameron's uh, 1986 classic Aliens. Um, And we have Dave Jacob here in the studio with us. Um, Before we wrap up, Dave, what's kind of next on the cards for you? Are you going to tackle another James Cameron film or uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are you well, going to do? Now that I'm feeling scared that James Cameron alien fans are coming for me, maybe not. Maybe yeah. I'll give James Cameron a break and, and you know, stop bagging out James Horner, Horner on, uh, you know, on radio. But uh, next, I mean, it's funny, Chris from Laser Highway actually asked me the other day, he was like, okay, cool, what do you want to do for October this year? And I'm like, oh, do I really want to do another score? I don't know because it takes, it took so much out of me doing it the last yeah. two years. And because it was locked down and I was basically doing it from home with all my gear, so easy then because I can just plug in a few cameras and and just kind of do it from there. Um, The next plan for me is really just try and take my favorite parts from the Alien score and then the previous one, the Dawn of the Dense rescore, along with, you know, um, through 2021, I released um, 10 singles of stuff that I'd worked on through 2020. So I want to take all of that material and then build that into a new live set and then do some live gigs using just the kind of like analog synths and drum machines that I used to do the rescore. Um, and then, yeah, try and gig that out a bit, uh, ideally with some of the visuals from the movies mm. as part of that as well. Yeah, that'd be beautiful. Yeah, just mm. as kind of almost like a, like a double feature, you know, that kind of way. So, yeah. So that's that's what's on the agenda for now, anyway. Oh, I'm very excited. Mm. Um, if you've just tuned in, we have been speaking with Dave Jacob about his reimagined score of James Cameron's 1986 classic Alien. Um, so the single is dropping tomorrow, is that the right? The album and the release party ah. is tomorrow at 8 o'clock. So um, the single, A Cloud of Vapor, The Size of Nebraska, is available on Spotify at the moment. Um if you go to encryptor.bandcamp.com, the album is there. You can preview the, the single. If you buy the album, you get just that one track for now. And then tomorrow night at 8 o'clock, there is the kind of release party for the album. And so what that kind of entails is um, it's through Bandcamp Live, which is Bandcamp's new kind of sub-platform, which is kind of like a, it's like a ticketed version of Twitch. So you can watch live streams of your favorite performers, um, you buy tickets, there's merch tables. And the way that it works is if you buy the ticket for the release party, you get to watch the full stream, the 80, 85 minutes of the original live performance, which I've remastered with more dialogue and more SFX and things in it now. And then if you buy the ticket, you get the album included in that as well. So, oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming on Primal Screen, Dave. Thank you for having me. It's been um, a pleasure. And in case you missed the name of it, 
Dave's album, I should stop calling you Dave, The Encryptors' (laughs) album is Aliens Live at 426. Um, There's also going to be a release party from 8pm tomorrow. Um, So you can listen back to that interview on our Triple R website, rrr.org.au or via the Primal Screen podcast. Um, And as I mentioned at the start of the show, it's April Amnesty here at Triple R. And it's a time in which we call upon our listeners to to show support for community radio by subscribing or donating. Um, It costs as little as $40 a year for concession or $85 for full membership. And if you subscribe in April, there's a whole heap of awesome prizes. Um, I think I saw something about a year's worth of olive oil, maybe, and like a myth pass. I don't know which I'm more excited about, but both very good prizes. Um, Anyway, it is now time for our first review of the night. Um, Look, it's a film that's been described as a brutal vision of vengeance and violence, and conversely, not weird or violent enough. We are, of course, talking about Robert Eggers' The Northman, and here is a short clip. Fate has no mercy. escape my faint. So listeners uh, will likely know Robert Eggers' um, earlier films. Uh, he's got his directorial debut, Witch, um, from 2015, and then 2019's The Lighthouse, uh, which coincidentally was the last film uh, I saw before my partner and I got stuck together for several months because of Melbourne's lockdown, um, which highly related to Don't to make Defoe it about and- you. <laughs> we all went through it. <laughs> no, it was something about like literally that night being like, oh, we're in lockdown forever after watching a very claustrophobic film. But also it's all about me, Will. Um, <laughs> don't try get to have the announcer mic. Um, but look, here we are in 2022. We survived it um, uh, with freshly relaxed COVID uh, restrictions um, back in the cinema, just in time for this Viking romp, The Northman. Uh, Will, what can you tell us about The Northman? I, I wouldn't say romp. I'd say it's a, it's a <laughs> brutally violent Viking epic is what I've written down here. And it's dark and it's moody and it's doomy and it's Scandinavian. But actually less death metal and more weird folk, I think, yeah. in vibe. So yeah. the plot is the stuff of legend. A, a, a boy prince watches the murder of his father, played by Ethan Hawke, at the hands of his uncle, Claire yeah. Spang. I didn't recognise Ethan Hawke at all in this. Oh, well. I, I recognised him straight away. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the boy, Amleth, flees, becomes a warrior and vows to make his father's murderer pay so as as a grown-up he's alexander skarsgård tracks down his uncle now married to his mother nicole kidman and plots his death with the help of a magical slave girl played by anya taylor joy i can't believe you just said that phrase well look (laughs) i thought about it long and hard before i went with that phrase but um and i haven't mentioned the gloriously odd turns by willem dafoe and bjork yet um Mm. who were both brilliant in it so it plays with mythology. You'll be 
familiar with from Hamlet and jarringly the Lion King. Uh, (laughs) It is wildly violent. It's a symphony of testosterone and vengeance. Uh, Vaishnavi, how did the testosterone go down with you? Look, um, you know, I agree with you. I thought it was really interesting visually. I think the um, director, Robert Eggers, talked a lot about trying to maintain the historical accuracy in terms of, like, um, the cultural inclusions, the folklore stuff, the costuming, the set Mm. design. That was all really great. And set against, like, that Icelandic background really kind of created the mood. I did find the folklore bits really interesting and at times, kind of funny. I would just laugh to myself. I'm like, this is really <laughs> odd. And I'm like, I know this isn't meant to be a funny moment, but I'm laughing. Did, didn't you find that, though, in his earlier film, Witch? Like, I remember watching that and giggling through a lot of it. And then I was like, am I meant to be giggling? And I'm not always sure with Eggers. If Lighthouse was a little bit, you know, if they turned the lights up a bit, it would be a sitcom. You know, it's all funny. They're all funny and it's, weird. I mean, yeah. with The Lighthouse, there's a homoeroticism that just borders on this comic excess at times so yeah maybe maybe Eggers is aware of this this as well I feel like he is I feel like he really kind of camped it up a bit in terms of those Viking kind of carnal elements Mm. um but I felt like I wasn't as invested in the hero element of the journey in the same way that you would say Game of Thrones or Vikings or like Gladiator where you're really invested in this hero's story Mm. and want him to achieve the vengeance that he's kind of seeking out. Um, And, yeah, like the folklore was really a bit hard to follow at times. And Mm. at times I was like, I wish there was like less stabby stabby, more plotty plotty. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Well, it's interesting that you say uh, earlier you were talking a bit about like the historical accuracy. And I think there's already been... Um, the medievalist.com, it's not called that, but they basically have had a response. They've written up a response to say not quite as accurate as we would have liked. Mm. But in all the interviews, Eggers has really reinforced all the amount of research he's done, which in some ways I think takes away from the fact that it is a very, uh, yeah, macho, stabby film um, and this kind of like almost ridiculous presentation of, of masculinity in Skarsgård, mm. who at one point, um, he does seem to walk around most of the film with this ridiculous hunch, and it might be from the fact that he's got some crippling six-packs yeah, <laughs> going very, on. It's, it's a lot of weight to carry. Oh, it's a lot of muscle. I, like when he was, I, I actually don't think I could imagine anyone else taking on the role in terms of that carnal physicality. Mm. Like I feel like, especially because, you know, Skarsgård is Swedish, so I yeah. felt like he could kind of connect with that as well. But he... I couldn't imagine anyone else doing that. And I think in terms of that kind of physicality of the role, he did quite well. And, like, the only other performance that I really enjoyed was probably Anya Joy Taylor's. I thought she was really fantastic in it as, like, this kind of sorceress... Valkyrie um, lady. But what I really struggled with is because I watched Big Little Lies and in that, Skarsgård and Nicole Kidman play husband and wife. Mm. And then here to watch them play mother and son, I was like, it's like Hollywood people. She Um, she passed that, Kidman passed that age barrier where you're a wife and now you're a grandmother and there's (laughs) nothing in between in Hollywood. It was so, I couldn't take away from it. I was just like, this just is so weird. Yeah, there is a a little bit of an Oedipal twist as well to this. True. Not a twist as such, but an undercurrent. Oedipal undercurrent, for sure. You said said it's very masculine and very violent, but it is, but it's also, it's a critique of, you know, it's a... There is I mean, nobody's yeah. coming out of this no. well. No. Well, this is the interesting thing. I, I think that Eggers comes into this with the right mindset. I, I c- agree with you completely, Will. I think that it is critiquing this, and that is where the, this Norse mythology is also doing the same thing. However, I did read that um, there's, uh, you know, white nationalists do take on a lot of the Nordic mythology in order to sort of anchor a lot of their racist mm. ideas and 
to this idea of, of being authentic and that's my history. And we've seen, um, you know, we don't need to go through all the cases of um, crazy white men who have written Nordic sayings on guns and things like that, but it, I, it's interesting how, I don't know, Eggers is aware of this and he has responded to it, but I don't know whether the film goes deeply enough into interrogating the violence. So it's kind of like hinged at, but maybe there's lots of ways in which this can be kind of co-opted and it has been co-opted already by white nationalists who have um, apparently given the film a tick of approval. And I know you can't make a film and say, you know, oh, I don't want to, you don't know how the audiences are going to mm. respond and what they're going to take from it. And um, it's just interesting. There was an article in The Guardian the other day discussing exactly this. And I, I think it really captures something that's really fascinating about film criticism is that you just, you know, you can make a film and then it's just kind of throwing it out into the world what people are going to take from it. And I, I don't think that's the intention of Eggers. I think, if anything, Eggers' focus as a filmmaker seems very much into the interrogating masculinity and really undoing it. Um, it's just that a lot of the imagery in this film um, is of Skarsgård stomping around. He's a very beautiful man. He's incredibly ripped. And it kind of fits into, and you know, Anya uh, Taylor-Joy, who you mentioned before, um, she, you know, she also fits into this very, like, blonde um, aesthetic of, of kind of white nationalism. So I'm not saying that the film is this, that I just, it's interesting how it's been co-opted. Um, I think for me, similar to what you were saying, um, Vaishnavi, about the the mythology around it, and when, when Eggers is doing folklore, I think he's at his best, and we saw that in mm. Witch, really. This is quite folkloric. Yeah. yeah. And But I, I, I don't know, I've I got to say about the you know, co-opted by white nationalists, I mean, it is actually there, you know, it's, it's, it's a part of a Scandinavian history and culture, you know. It is, So yeah. you can't give that over to white nationalist weirdos. The, they've kind of taken it, though, what is what I'm saying, yeah. is that they've kind of – that's a curious thing when you've got um, iconography like that where mm. you do have – and I don't think that – I think it's really important to say, I don't think the protagonist is presented as a hero, and that's a really important thing that sometimes gets lost, um, you know. And it's just – it's actually a more nuanced story – then perhaps is being communicated or understood. Mm. There is no telling what those people are going to take. <laughs> take for Apparently their own. they I mean, love, love the frog. Actually. It's a green. Do they? <laughs> yeah, that gets because everybody's white. Everyone's much? very white. Yeah. Right, okay. <laughs> but it's well, also well, interesting when you talk about the iconography of the white nationalism, because like the wolf pelt that you see, like yeah. Alexander Skarsgård performing, like we saw people who kind of you know stampeded through like the White House, mm. also wearing that kind of outfit. Precisely. So you can see how it does get co-opted, and, and yeah, mm. I think in terms of like. A hero. He probably isn't painted as a hero as such. There is definitely a more of a vulnerability to him in terms yep. of the place of where he's coming from in terms of this kind of revenge plot. And and I you kind of feel like in the end that he's you know quite like hard done by by the whole situation, really. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I, I do recommend that Guardian article because it goes into, into it in quite a lot of depth. I just one one more thing I wanted to add was I was um, I did actually I think enjoy this film, but. There was parts of it that took me away, and I think the accents, it was like there's a Russian accent, there's a Scottish accent, there's an English accent. It, it, at one point it kind of descends into vague Eastern European. I was a bit lost. Were like, you like similar? Yeah, like general European. Like It's kind of like watching <laughs> Game of Thrones. Are these like, the actors yeah. just in their natural yeah. accents? Yeah, potentially. So, I mean, well, what, do they do just a no, scandal? Not Nicole Kidman or, no. you know, Ethan should, should they do like a Swedish chef or something? No, I just think that like <laughs> it's interesting when like – films where they, they go to so much uh, focus on the historical accuracy and then you have, you know, 
nine different actors and not as a criticism to the performances. I think the performance is really strong, but it is kind of jarring when you're like, why is he Russian? Why is this he yeah. English? I, I why is he it. Scottish? <laughs> yeah, I noticed it a lot. One other point I wanted to make was around like the symbolism of the crows. Like in a lot of cultures, crows are considered to be like um, ancestors or symbolic of ancestors or your ancestors' um, spirits, um, you know, exist with them. It, it's um, true for Aboriginal mm. characters in central Victoria. It's true for Hinduism. Um, and I found the presence of the crows really interesting. And in kind of that kind of Norse um, mythology, they're said to be like protectors or like, you know, carrying spirits of like, you know, warriors that have passed on. And I found that really interesting. That and is. like weird trivia, when before I watched the film, I was sitting with my friend and we were having a coffee and there was like a crow sitting at our feet. <laughs> and after I watched the film, I told her, I'm like, do you remember? Like, what are you <laughs> like? I'm like, is this a sign? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I feel like there is a lot, um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack in it. And I, I actually don't know if I've made up my mind on this film. I think a lot of people will enjoy The Northman. Um, I keep calling it Northland for some reason, but, um, I must need to get something from the, there. The, shop, the shopping <laughs> centre, yeah. The Northman, though. Um, it's currently streaming, uh, screening at all major and independent cinemas. Um, so it is time for our final film of the night. And this is a film that I have actually been really lo looking forward to seeing on the big screen. Um, I think there's something actually almost essential about seeing this next film on the big screen because of how immersive it is. Um, it is Memoria by Thai filmmaker Apishapong uh, Y. Ras Takul. Uh, I'm going to play you a short clip of Memoria now. It's, um, it's, it's like a rumble from the core of the earth bang and and then then it shrinks Vaishni, um all three of us actually saw this film. Um, we, had, we had a cute little like primal screen date on Friday. Um, before we before we kind of get into our reviews of this, though, um, how would how would you describe the plot of Memoria? Yeah, it it's hard to describe mm. the plot of Memoria. So it stars Tilda Swinton, and it's about a Scottish woman that, after hearing a loud bang begins to hear this sound ongoing and she's the only one who can really hear it and it's due to some kind of mysterious sensory syndrome while she's travelling through Colombia. Um, and it's interesting. So this was um, Apichatpong Wirasethakul's um, first film that wasn't filmed in Thailand. So it was interesting to mm. see how that kind of unfamiliarity played into the, the, the factor, like the atmosphere of, of the film. Um, yeah, I was really interested to know what all of you thought because after watching it, I felt like I really wanted to discuss it, but obviously wanted to save the conversation for tonight. But yeah, Will, what did you think after seeing it? Um, well, I don't, I'm not always on board with Virasthetical. I mean, some of his more recent, before his, like his most recent one before this Cemetery of Splendor just felt very closed off to me. I just couldn't go. See, I, I love Cemetery of Splendor. Yeah, well, 
I don't know why. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know why. No I, no, I don't know why I don't. I'm, I'm the one, the outlier here because everyone I've spoken to says they absolutely love it. But this I was right along with. I, I just, I, you don't really understand uh, a weird aesthetical film. You feel it. And I felt every moment, not every moment of it, but the bones of it, something deep in the core of it. I don't think you want to feel every moment of it. I think you want to feel slightly alienated, you know. Well, it's, yeah, and I think that comment that you made before, um, Vaishnavi, about the fact that this is um, his his first film outside of, of Thailand um, and working with, with an international cast of sorts and, th- mm. and setting himself a- and this story in Colombia is really curious and I think... There is elements of alienation both on a personal level with the characters but also an actual alien, you know, what it means to be human. Yeah. Um, I think it's hinted at as well. Um, Th- that was a strange con- exchange at the end. I, I read uh, – well, I heard in an interview Tilda Swinton saying that that was a conscious thing. They they mm. both chose – they wanted to work together but Swinton said that, um, you know, she would feel it would be too difficult for her to sort of work in Thailand with him um, he, he, she would feel an outsider. Mm. Um, and so they chose somewhere where they're both outsiders. Mm. And I think maybe that's why I engage with it so much because I'm an outsider there as well. So the three of us, you know, the, the writer-director, the star and, and, and me, mm. the three that are involved in the conversation, me as the viewer, mm. we're all strangers and we're all kind of unmoored. And the, Yeah, that's a beautiful um, word to describe that, unmoored, because I think that... Um, you know, the spectator, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? I feel as though, you know, um, Vaishnavi, you are mentioning the sound before, this sound that um, Jessica, the main character, hears. And in the clip that I played, you actually hear a sound very similar to that where she's trying to literally put it into words. She's trying to, to pinpoint this thing that's happening to her. And I actually loved that liminality of it. And I also loved that, similar to Jessica, we hear that sound. The first time I heard it, it really shook me mm. and it, it, in the, this is why I think you do need to see it in the cinema because it floors you and it really does uh, impact you on a deep visceral level. Um, and I think that it's not a film, you know, I, I don't want to sound too much of a like wanky a- academic but I do think that with slow cinema you almost need to see it in the cinema simply because if you're going to watch it at home it'd be too easy to not be on board with this film, I think it'd be too easy to double screen. It'd be you disengage. Know, like like it's so easy yeah. to disengage from the film mm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Like I actually like what you were saying about um, that kind of uneasiness because, in some ways, it felt like um, Tilda Swinton's character Jessica was familiar because she could speak the language at least at some level on a speaking level. So she it seemed like she'd been there for, for a little bit of time. But at the same time, it felt like the place felt so foreign and she mm. she didn't she felt a bit lost as well. So it was this kind of like friction between those two things that also made you as a viewer feel, feel quite uneasy and, and, and mm. lost with her. Um, and it's interesting because some of his previous films kind of explored the idea, like these ideas of ex- existentialism and like the afterlife and, and what exists beyond that. And there were some elements of that in this film. And I remember um, Tilda Swinton saying about the character, like she, she isn't really a three-dimensional character. She isn't really a fully-fledged person. You don't actually know a lot about her or why she's there. Mm. The, the idea of Jessica is actually a predicament. Um, mm. You know, it's like a human situation that you find yourself in. And even in terms of um, the fact that the sound bit was such a prevalent theme throughout the whole of it... Um, Apichat Pong was actually inspired by the fact that he had this kind of um, 
syndrome um, during his time mm. in like Colombia, um, where he would hear this kind of like kind of loud sound when he'd wake up in the morning, um, and this was kind of this predicament kind of inspired the concept around the film. Exploding head syndrome. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it. Exploding head syndrome. That's that's how. That's why they've called it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I yeah, don't know yeah. Why. It yeah, sounds yeah. more dramatic than it is. But, yeah. Um, it also sounds like it would be a rather horrible experience. Discomforting. Mm. Yeah. There's there's a lot to unpack on this unpack from from this film. Um, I do have a few friends that are, have seen Memoria because um, it has been playing for a little while. It pl- was playing at Acme and, and now it's at Cinema Nova, um, and I think maybe Thornbury Picture House. I might have that wrong, but um, I had friends of mine who were saying they found this really frustrating and they found it they didn't like it and uh, at some points they felt bored by it. And I have heard um, a Pong say. He doesn't actually mind if people fall asleep in his films. And and I think that maybe the frustration – and I actually think I felt that as well. I, I think that it's intentional and I'm not trying to, like, let it off the hook to say that, you know, that discounts, you know, not liking the film. But it, it, it's kind of interesting to have a different experience of cinema and I think that that is what slow cinema offers people sometimes. It's just a completely different pace and there is something with being forced – to sit and watch and I notice I, I, I don't think that Memoria is one of my favorite ones of his and I think that actually that you know you touched upon this before about the that sense of that existential um, crises at the center of this film I think he's he's dealt with that and interrogated it better in other films and I feel as though the somnambulant sort of pace of this film worked better in like Cemetery of Splendor where we're also seeing it in the narrative and it just makes perfect sense in that film and I don't know whether it's as well executed in Memoria but I, I still kind of am just glad that it exists and I'm glad that I saw it on the cinema. I was absolutely gripped by it. Mm. I mean I could see why you think you could, people could find it boring mm. because almost nothing happens in it and if you're looking for something to happen then yeah you're going to be sorely disappointed. Mm. But there are many other films that you could choose. Yeah. <laughs> but, also, but you can have you can have films where a lot happens. I've had films like action films where I've fallen asleep in yeah. it because it's like it's it too doesn't much. grip and it doesn't anchor it to any felt experience of caring about the characters. Yeah. But what I think he does really well is intimacy between people, like real intimacy, either little moments that might just be small connections or they might be big, deep ones, but they just always feel very real. Mm. You know, when she meets this woman in a hospital who works there and says, oh, would you like to come in and see what we're we're excavating? Mm. You know, that just moment between the two of them. You could just see the calculations on her. Just like, she looks harmless. I'm going to invite her into this room. It just, it just, yeah. See, for me, the thing I love the most, the elements I love most about this was actually processes. It wasn't the human interaction so much, which I actually think comes across, like you were saying, Vaishnavi, kind of almost like alienating and kind of disjointed. I actually love just watching the processes, like having the sound engineer just going through the different oh, sounds. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of loved that. I, I, I think that that's something that is really there to enjoy in slow cinema where you're just playing an event or a process out for the duration and that's quite rare <laughs> in film. And just try that, that process, that scene where you, mm. you're discussing where Tilda Swinton tries to describe the, the sound that she's hearing that mm. only she can hear to a sound engineer and it's just trying to communicate something that is mm. only exists in her head mm. to another person. Yeah. Is ju- yeah, just watching that frustrating, slow process mm. is so satisfying and, uh, yeah, gripping. Well, Memoria is currently screening at select independent cinemas. You have been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Vaishnavi Vajkumar. 
Uh, Will Cox and myself, Flick Ford. Earlier tonight, we spoke with Melbourne-based producer Dave Jacob about his reimagined score for James Cameron's Aliens called Aliens Live 426. Um, and you can check out his uh, listening party or release party tomorrow night from 8pm. Um, just head to Bandcamp. Um, and there's also like the album, so you can listen right now to the single, but the whole album, which I highly, highly recommend checking out, um, is going to be um, kind of part of this very cool live event. So make sure you check that out. Um, on tonight's show, we reviewed Robert Eggers' bloodthirsty Viking flick, The Northman, which is currently screening at all major and independent cinemas. And we finished the hour with the drama fantasy Memoria, directed by Apisha Pong, we, uh, Why? Sorry, we're ra- rastical. We're aesthetical. We're yeah, aesthetical. We're aesthetical. I, that's easier now that I can hear it. <laughs> uh, which is now screening at select independent cinemas. Uh, you can listen back online at rrr.org.au or subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast. A big thank you to Dave Jacob and my guest reviewers, Will and Vaishnavi. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 